Amen. Well, Hart family, welcome. Good to have you all here. We are in Daniel chapter 3 this morning because this summer we're working through the first six chapters of Daniel. Um, any other guests that are with us this morning, welcome to you as well. We're working through the first six narrative stories in the book of Daniel, which actually are correspond to the first six chapters roughly, and we're in chapter 3 this morning, uh, having started a couple of Sundays ago. So this, this morning, if you've been with us the last couple of Sundays and you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you're going to see a certain repetition that's going on in all three of these first chapters. Already in these first three chapters, you may have noticed that they're basically the same story. What happens is the people of God are faced with a crisis because of their faith. We saw it in Daniel 1, we see it in Daniel chapter 2, and we see it in Daniel chapter 3. They then respond by prayerfully and carefully following the commands of God and refusing to do what Babylon is calling them to do if, in so doing, it requires them to disobey the Lord. And the people of God are then delivered by the Lord, and they're even honored by the rulers themselves. Amen. And so that's what we see in this sort of story that recapitulates itself three different times in the first three chapters. There's a certain flow to it. There's a certain repetition about it. You might even say there's a certain monotony to it. It just happens again and again. But there's a lesson for us even in these first three chapters and the fact that the story is essentially the same. The lesson is twofold. First, one thing it certainly teaches us is that Satan's onslaughts against the people of God are not occasional activities. They come again and again and again to the people of God. So we should expect regular trials, not occasional ones. But second, the good news is, is that God honors his people in the midst of their trials when they are faithful to him. When God's people choose to serve him despite the threats of the world, when God's people choose to follow him, no matter what the consequences, blessing always occurs. Blessing may occur in different ways. You may end up being burned by the fiery furnace, or you may escape the fiery furnace, but you will be blessed nonetheless, and even in surprising ways, because God is always faithful to his people. God uses trials and tribulations and difficulties to produce even more significant fruit in the lives of his people. This is the way John Calvin put it. He said, the church of Christ has been so constituted from the beginning that death has been the way to life and that the way of the cross is the path to victory. And this has been shown to be the case in the life of Daniel and his three friends. They meet trial after trial after trial. And does that lead them to give up? Does it lead them to despondency and doubt? Does it lead them to fear? No. It just leads them to what God intended it to lead them to. It produces men of superb character who believe in God and who are ready to be inflexibly faithful to him in the face of the stoutest and stiffest persecution. This is how God makes Christians, if we might put it that way. By the very testing that he puts them through, they are refined as gold. And that's what we see here in the life of Daniel and in this chapter. So, three points this morning as we make our way through the entirety of Daniel chapter 3. And here's the first one. First seven verses. A demand for allegiance. A demand for allegiance. Let's read verse 1. 
King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and even kind of and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We got in these first seven verses a demand for allegiance to a human king. Now, why? The question is why? Why is Nebuchadnezzar building this large golden statue and calling all nations, all peoples, all languages to come and bow down before it, lest they be killed if they don't? Well, it's likely because of what happened in the previous chapter. Remember last week when he has the dream? He has a dream in which his kingdom is crushed. His kingdom is destroyed. His kingdom is brought down by another king. And as a response to that, we see what he does in the previous verses before chapter 3 begins. Notice verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So Nebuchadnezzar got a question for you. If God is the God of gods, and the Lord of Lords, and the Revealer of Mysteries, what's the statue of you all about? We seem to learn something here about the way people can respond to witnessing the work of God in the life of somebody. Nebuchadnezzar has seen some amazing things as a result of what happened to Daniel in a result of, as a result of his faithfulness. He was able to give the content and the interpretation of, his, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, which totally wowed him, knocked him back, made him aware that there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There is a God in heaven who is able to give knowledge to people who shouldn't have that knowledge. And nevertheless, here... He responds in a completely contrary way to what the way he responded in chapter 2. In, the, in, the, in chapter 2, he's getting ready to fall down and worship. He's acknowledging that God is God, that he's the Lord, that Daniel's God is the true God. And yet, right here in chapter 3, he's going against the content of that dream and trying to make sure his kingdom and his legacy and his worship lives on. It's a sad picture of what can happen because you notice it almost seems like it's an act of defiance on Nebuchadnezzar's part. He's defying what the content of the dream revealed. 
He's saying, you, okay, so yeah, God is God, but I'm also really important. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom had been, if you remember, just a head of gold. But in this chapter, we see the whole statue is made of gold. That's pretty significant. Because the significance is he is rebelling and challenging the content of what Daniel's dream or what Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream revealed. It's a, it's a, and he's saying, you think that, that my kingdom's not going to live on. You think that my worship and my honoring of myself and the glory of Babylon is not going to continue. We'll see about that. And he builds this large statue as a way to secure the ongoing permanence and preeminence of Babylon in the lives of all people. You know what? This shows something about Nebuchadnezzar's condition and the condition of his heart. And what happened as a result of the illumination he had received in chapter 2. You know, it's, it, it's interesting because it shows that while some people can have respect for the Lord and admire what he's able to do, it doesn't necessarily mean that that person is wholeheartedly submitted to God. You can be impressed by the Lord and not converted by the Lord. You can be shaken up, but you, cannot be, you, you may not have been truly humbled. You could have had strong spiritual impressions, the goosebumps. You could have felt spiritual life and the winds of the Spirit around you, and be actually an observer of the activity and the work of God and not belong to God. And that's what we see. Nebuchadnezzar's not any better off as a result of what's happened here. He had strong spiritual impressions, but he literally falls into the category of who Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7. You call me Lord, Lord? There will be many who call me Lord, Lord, but I don't know them because they don't do the will of the Father. There's going to be multitudes of people like that. We see something of this in Hebrews chapter 6. If you've got a Bible, you can go over there. I'll read the verses for us. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, talk about these sorts of cases in which people experience spiritual impressions from the Spirit and yet never are truly converted as a result of them. Verse 4, for it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. That's what Nebuchadnezzar tasted a little bit. And have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It's a dangerous thing to get that close to the work of God, and to not be converted as a result. And this is a, this is a strong warning for people who grow up in the church, who grow up around Christianity, around what God is doing, around God changing people's lives and saving people, and continuing to resist coming to Christ yourself. It, it could very well be that you're in the camp of Nebuchadnezzar, and don't be that way. You don't have to respond that way. God in his grace has placed you in a context where you're able to hear the word of God, you're able to see and experience the people of God and the work of God among the people of God, and let that draw you to God. Let that be an incentive to draw near to him and don't resist him by merely saying he's God or saying he's Lord, but in reality, you really want to be worshiped yourself and you really want to keep your own sovereignty and you really want to make sure that people know who you are. 
And that's what we see in Daniel chapter 3, is Nebuchadnezzar responding that way. It's a very fearful thing that can happen as a result of being near to the work of God. Just because we're near to the work of God doesn't mean good things are going to happen in us. It could very well be just the opposite. So that's the allegiance that Nebuchadnezzar calls for. Now let's go to point number two and see a response of defiance. A response of defiance. Let's pick up reading at verse eight. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve any gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Can you put yourself here? Can you put yourself here? This is, again, this is proving time. They are right on the cusp of having their lives possibly taken away from them. They're right on the cusp. All they have to say is, sure. Yeah, we haven't done it up to this point, but we're going to go ahead and, now that we know that you're serious about this, we're going to go ahead and bow down to the image that you've made and acknowledge that you are the true king. But that's not what they're going to do. Look at verse 15. These verses 15 and 16 are some of the most powerful verses in the whole chapter. Now, if you are ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You'll see, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That is amazing. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 17 we see that these three friends, these three brothers, had confidence in the power of God. They said, our God is able to deliver us. They were utterly confident in God's power to deliver them. They trusted in God's abilities, not their own, God's abilities to do that which would be entirely supernatural if it happened, to be delivered. But notice the second thing. While they were completely confident in the power of God, they were also completely submissive to the will of God. Because they didn't say, you know what? We're going to trust God because he's definitely going to deliver us. They said, we're going to trust God even if he doesn't. 
Their faith was not in their deliverance. Their faith was in their God. And there is no more awesome passage in the Bible when these men look the most powerful king on the face of the earth and says, look, even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not going to worship your God or bow down to your statue. Burn us if you must. That ought to send a chill up the back of every believer that reads it. Because that's the kind of loyalty and faith that the Lord God is calling us to have this morning. Faith does not regard death or any other tragedy to be a mark of faith's failure, either of God's faithfulness or of ours. We're called called to follow him, to trust him, no matter what the consequences, leaving the events to him. Now think about this a little, let's think about this a little bit more together. There is an almost paradoxical balance of confidence and humility in this response. On the one hand, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego demonstrate great confidence and strong belief that God is not only able to rescue them, but they believe that he actually will. But then we're puzzled by their next sentence saying, but if not, but if not, if they're confident in God, why would they even admit the possibility of not being delivered? Doesn't that show a lack of faith? The answer is that their confidence was actually in God and not in their limited understanding of what they thought God would do. They had an inner assurance that God would rescue them. However, they were not so arrogant as to be sure that they were reading God right. They knew that God was under no obligation to operate according to their limited wisdom. In other words, their confidence was in God himself, not in some agenda that they wanted God to promote. Because if they were like that, they'd be like Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar wants God as long as God's going to promote his agenda. As long as God will sign off on my life plan, then I'll follow him. But as soon as he calls me to do something that I might not want to do, or that might be contrary to my desires, or that might be crucifying to my my loves and my flesh and my ego and my pride, no way. No, they trusted in God, and that included trust that he knew better than they what should happen. So they were essentially saying this, look, even Nebuchadnezzar, if our God does not rescue us, and that's right for him to rescue us, we will still serve him and not you. We will serve him whether he conforms to our wisdom and our plans or not. We will not defy you. We we do not defy you because we think we're going to live. We defy you because our God is God and you're not. I often hear people say something like this. You've perhaps heard this from people. That if God is going to bless us, we have to believe fervently, without any doubts, that God will bless us. We have to claim our blessing with full assurance that we will get it. But listen, we don't see that here. Nor do we see that attitude in other places in the Bible. Think of all the great servants of God. Abraham, Joseph, David, Jesus, who often prayed and didn't get the answer that they sought. If we say... I know you will answer this prayer, God. You cannot not answer it. Then our confidence is not really in God's wisdom. It's in ours. As a pastor, I've heard people say, Pastor, I trusted God and I prayed so hard for this, but he never gave it to me. God let me down. But to be more precise, listen, the deepest faith of people who say that their deepest faith and hope was, not, was actually set on an agenda that they had devised for their own lives and wanted God to sign off on. 
And God was just the means they were deploying to get that end. At best, they were trusting in God plus my plan for my life. But these three men trusted in God, period. And they were already, as a result of that, spiritually fireproofed. Because they were ready for deliverance or death. Either way, they're getting God. Either way, they knew God would be glorified and they would be with him. And that's all they want. They want God's great image to be set up over Babylon, regardless if it means their death or their deliverance. They knew that God would either deliver them from death or God would deliver them through death, but he would deliver them. Their greatest joy was to honor God, not to use God to get what they wanted in life. And as a result, they were fearless. Nothing could overthrow them as a result. Aren't you encouraged by that? Aren't you, aren't you instructed by that? Aren't you challenged by that to see in these men a resolve and a love and a passion to, for, for God and his glory that they would even consider their own lives worth taking if it would mean that God would be seen as trusted? Because you know what? Say they go into the fiery furnace and say they are delivered through death. They actually die in the fiery furnace then what is that going to say about God to Nebuchadnezzar? That God must be something else because he must be worth giving your life for. He must be worth that much that these men would voluntarily give their lives away so that this God would be seen as great and glorious. So they knew that God was going to get worshiped and glory regardless. That was their main preoccupation. And the resolve of these men and the, re- the, res- the resoluteness of these men is what should be an instructive word for us, especially to us men on this Father's Day. And I want to take just a moment to, to just to speak from these men's example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the resolve they had to follow the Lord and apply that to us as dads and fathers this morning. Because you'll remember Joshua had this kind of resolve, and he had this kind of resolve as it related to being a father. Because he said in Joshua chapter 24, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's resolve. That's saying, regardless of what comes against me, regardless of what comes against my family, by God's grace and with God's strength and power, we are going to serve the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 and 4, give us a picture of what that kind of leadership men should look like in our homes. Listen to these verses. When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, He is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Think about that. Isn't that a beautiful picture of leadership? It's saying a man who rules in righteousness, who leads his, it's not just talking about the family there. It's talking about anywhere that God has placed a a level of leadership on, on our shoulders. And as men, we're called to lead our families. And what we see here is a picture of leadership that's so contrary to what our culture says leadership is. You know, the man walking in his house, claiming his rights, all that stuff. That's nothing like this. There's two images here of what this leadership produces. It produces hope and refreshment in those that he leads. You see that? It says in 2 Samuel, the light of morning at sunrise. That's a picture of hope, a new day. It's been a long, dark night. The spirits of everyone are lifted when the sun rises on a cloudless day. And then the rain that brings grass from the earth. That's a picture of refreshment. Good leadership causes people to grow and flourish like grass after the rain. 
And what does that leadership, brothers, in our homes look like? Let me give you some examples. We'll put them up on the screen here. I think, and there could be others that could be added to this. A wise father in disciplining his children is careful not to be so impossible to please that he drives them up a wall. Not exasperating your kids. A faithful father isn't lazy or heedless, but conscientiously takes responsibility for his children's spiritual welfare like Job did. He boldly claims his family for the Lord. He leads his family through life with unmistakable spiritual commitment. He brings his family before the Lord in prayer. He provides for his family with good earthly things according to their legitimate needs. He responds to their requests with good gifts. He looks into the future and plans an inheritance for his family. In it all, in both failure and success, a Christian father is strengthened by his awareness that his own father in heaven loves him and approves of him for Jesus' sake. Those are just just biblical snapshots of something of what the leadership of our homes is supposed to look like, brothers. And here's my challenge to us all this morning, including myself as a young dad. Will we commit before God that with his help, we will give this sort of leadership to our home? We will be morning sunrises and refreshing rains to our families? The kind of leadership that's like the light of the morning at sunrise and like the rain that brings grass on the earth? Now listen, your family may be difficult and even dysfunctional right now. But here's the good news. Your calling, even though you feel this, and we all feel this to some degree, the, this, the, of our failures and our difficulties with all this, but your calling is that your wife and your children, brothers, would feel hope because you're there, Amen. would feel refreshment because you're there. Your calling is that they would flourish and grow because of the way that you're guiding them and the way that you're caring for them. And if you feel like that's just, that's so far gone right now, it's so difficult, it's so dysfunctional, well, that that may mean some intervention, some help. That's why we got the church. We're a hospital here. We care for one another. We nurse each other back to spiritual health when we've fallen and struggling. So it may mean that we we get together with a brother or sister. We talk to another Christian man or a pastor or a sister or a brother in the Lord and who can be a model for us. Don't let family life just happen around you. It may mean sitting down with your son or your daughter and saying, which the gospel gives you great freedom and incentive to do, I have to tell you that I've failed God and I'm not providing the kind of leadership that we need. I'm sorry we got to get on a different track, and when we do, it will be for our good. So I challenge you to humble yourself and confess that to your family and determine that you're going to give effective leadership to them. It won't be easy, but the result is that it will be like the morning at sunrise and rain that brings grass on the earth. It will be hope-giving and refreshing, and that's my prayer for myself and for all of us as brothers this morning as we face the challenges of fatherhood. That's point two a resolve to defy the order of Nebuchadnezzar. So we've seen a couple of things here so far. We've seen in the first point a a demand for allegiance in the first seven verses. In the next section, verses 8 through 23, we see a call or a a resolve not to to, to defiance. And now we see point number three, a God of deliverance. And this is where we need to end this sermon. Because the true hero of this story is not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's not, this sermon is not about, you know what, you need to be more courageous and faithful and be like God's faithful people. 
That's a real moralistic, non-Christian message. That requires nothing, no help from God. But that the, the hero of this story is not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's the fourth man in the furnace. That's the hero of the story. And so we're going to talk about him for a few minutes. Let's talk about the fourth man in the furnace. Let's read verses 19, starting at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, we're going to skip over some of this because we already read it at the beginning. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Skip down, verse 25. He answered and said, after he threw them in the furnace, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Let's keep reading. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who's able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. He's doing it again. He didn't, now this is not allegiance to God. Don't think he's getting converted here. He didn't say, I'm for God. He just said, nobody's allowed to be against him. But he makes a decree. He's like, okay, no God is able to deliver. He's just one God among many. Verse 29, he's treating him like another God. So, but nevertheless, the true God did something amazing for our, for our brothers here. Now, I want you to see something in this verse 25 especially. You see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Before I get to that, I just want to say a word about God's care for us and God's love for us in the midst of our trials. Do you see the infinite lengths to which he went to be with us here, even in this story? Notice the way his care expressed itself in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's safety. Verse 27, the hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. That's how thorough God's protection of them was. No hairs singed, no cloaks harmed, no smell of fire on their bodies. But there's a greater manifestation of God's nearness and protection of us and his intent to be with us. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. At the birth of Jesus Christ, he came to be with us in our finite, weak humanity. All of his life, the Lord Jesus was under stress, often attacked by people seeking to kill him, constantly misunderstood, rejected. But it was supremely at the end of his life on the cross when he truly entered our furnace. Amen. 
Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he was condemned unjustly to a painful death by a totalitarian regime. It's exactly what happened in the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's what happened with Jesus. But listen, when it came time for Jesus to enter the furnace of affliction, there was no one to walk through that furnace with him. He was in it all by himself. No divine person stood beside him, for he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When the fire of God's wrath burned on him to the core and blazed unchecked over him, Jesus was entirely alone. Why? Why? Why would God be with these three Jewish exiles, but not with his only begotten son? The answer is that on the cross, Jesus was suffering not only with us, but he was suffering for us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were good men, yes, but they were still flawed human beings. David said that anyone, if, if God were to keep a record of anyone's sins, Psalm 130, verse 3, who could stand? These three men did not deserve the Lord's deliverance because of their perfect purity or because they were so sold out to God. God could walk through the fire with them because he came to earth in Jesus Christ and went through the fire of punishment that they and we all deserve. That is why he can forgive and accept those who trust in his mercy. And that's why he can be with us flawed, undeserving, sinful people in the fire because he went to the fire himself. If you remember, and here's the key, brothers and sisters, if you will remember with grateful amazement that Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you on the cross, then you can begin to sense him in your smaller furnaces in this life, your, more, your difficult trials that come to you. And so it means that we have to remember what our Savior has done for us in the midst of our trials. He was thrown into the ultimate fire, the fire that we deserve, and that's how we're saved. If we believe in him, then none of that wrath comes to us. What if, though, if you believe that God saves only those who live a very good life? If that is your belief, then when suffering hits you, you're going to either hate God or hate yourself. Because either you're going to say, well, I've lived a good enough life, I deserve better, God has done me wrong, or you'll say, I must have failed to live as I should, and I'm a loser, and that's why God won't help me. But listen, either way, you go into despair in the midst of the furnace. But a heart that is not in that situation where they don't feel that I've lived a good enough life so God must bless me or I must have lived a bad life because God won't bless me. Instead of being torn between anger and guilt like that, there is a better way. It's the way through Jesus and the gospel. Because if you go into the furnace with the gospel, it will will not be possible. Sorry, if you go into the furnace without the gospel, it will not be possible to find God in there. But you will be sure he has done terrible wrong or you have done something wrong and you'll feel all alone. But if you go into the fire with the gospel, then you can say, I know what, this is my furnace now. I'm not, but I'm not being punished for my sins because Jesus was thrown into that ultimate furnace already. And so if he went through that greatest fire for me, then I can go through this smaller furnace for him. And I also know that it will mean that if I trust him, this furnace will only make me stronger. It will only make me better. 
So listen, brothers and sisters, life in this world, this side of the new heaven and new earth, won't be pain-free for us. We're going to meet trials, but listen, it will never be Christ-absent. Because of the fourth man in the furnace. The angel here that is, appears as the fourth in the furnace, described by the writer as a son of the gods. Perhaps, we can't know for sure, but many scholars and writers over the years have taken this as a Christophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of the Son of God. But even if we don't see it that way, we can still see it as, a, as this angel as a type of Christ, as someone who has come alongside of God's people to rescue them, to save them, and to deliver them. As the angel saved the three friends from burning, so Jesus saves us from the eternal furnace. You notice he even uses, he even just, when Jesus is talking about hell, he even uses the language of a furnace. And he says that they will be sentenced to eternal fire. But here's the good news in John 3, 16, that, if, that, if we, that God loved the world so much that in this way that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So further, although the angel saved the three people from death, they would still die at a later time, right? Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they escaped the furnace, but they're not, they didn't escape death. But here's the good news. Jesus saves God's people even from death. And they will never die again. Don't you love that? Didn't you love that song we sang this morning that reminded us of that truth? He will not leave me in the grave. He is the resurrection and the life and that those who believe in him will not die, but they will live forever. So we see that Jesus saves us from the eternal furnace, that he will deliver us from death itself and even Though the angel joined the friends in the furnace, he did not give up his life for them. This angel didn't take the furnace for them, but Jesus did. He gave up his life for ours to save us. Jesus, the eternal son of God, joined humanity to his eternal deity and gave his own life to save us as God's people. And here's the good news. God promises, brothers and sisters, to be with us in our fiery trials. That's what we learn from Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 2, and Daniel chapter 3. But we have an even greater experience than what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got to experience. Because we have Jesus. He has come, he has lived, he has died, he has risen. He hadn't done any of that in this chapter yet. And he has sent another helper to be with us in the midst of our furnaces. Who's that other helper? Amen. The Holy Spirit of God. Another helper. And that language of another helper comes from the Greek word paraclete. It literally means someone who is called alongside of someone else to help them. And he gave it, he, gave, he comes and he gives us comfort. Comfort means strength with strength. Come forte with strength. So the Spirit has come to give, come alongside of us and give us strength and help in the midst of our struggles. I'm going to close with two passages from the Old Testament. Turn with me there if you have them. Isaiah chapter 43. These two great promises that we'll close with that remind us of God's care for us in the midst of our trials. 
Isaiah 43. And see if you don't pick up some language from Daniel here. Isaiah 43, verses 3 through 5. Let's start at verse 1. It's too good. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Our God is good to us. He loves us. He cares for us. He is with us. He walks with us, and he does not abandon us when we need him most. Psalm 66 is where we're going to close. Psalm 66. This, this could even serve as a benediction over our service at the end of the service today. Psalm 66, verses 10 through 12. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You have brought us into the net. You've laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. That's our God. He will always be a God of deliverance to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your word this morning and be reminded of not just the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is a compelling example to us, but more than that, that you are, you are with us in our trials. Lord Jesus, you took the words from this very chapter and you made this promise to your disciples, don't be afraid, not a hair of your head will perish. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you live for us, that you died for us, that you rose again for us, Lord Jesus, so that we can have hope that when we are in the furnace, it's a much smaller affliction because we know that you have gone through the worst for us that we might be comforted and helped. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who has come alongside of us to give us strength and help and to help us as we walk through the waters and walk through the fires. Thank you that your promise is that they will not consume us. They, you will either deliver us through death or by death, but you will deliver us one way or another. Help us to have the resolve and the hope and confidence and trust in you that when we meet various trials of different kinds, that we will hold on to you as you hold on to us. We don't want to just, just go through life and just expect you to show up. We want to be pursuing you and, and cultivating a relationship with you and walking with you so that we know your voice in the midst of the storm saying, peace, be still. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.